Is there any angle on the Super Bowl that someone hasn't analyzed and scrutinized? There's scholarly research into the emotional recall of Super Bowl advertising, auto club stats on the Super Bowl and drunk driving. And it does teach people Roman numerals, sort of. Hey, remember Super Bowl XXXIV? That was a doozy. Now we're at Super Bowl LIII, the 53rd year, and the first Super Bowl is as distant from the current one as the end of the Civil War is from the end of the First World War. Craig Coonan's book, From Sandlots to the Super Bowl, the National Football League, 1920-1967, marches through the improbable ascent of pro football from a low-rent small-town sport to the most-watched game in the country, capped by the over-the-top touchdown and guacamole glut that has become our unofficial national holiday. The NFL we see now with this mega production of the Super Bowl would have been unimaginable when pro football first started in the 20s. When the NFL first started in 1920, um, pro football had been around for a, a few years. Um, nobody really cared much for it because football as an entity had its fan base with college football, with upper class people and middle class people. And for working class people, largely they had semi-professional football and and teams that were play, teams that were made up of uh, of local boys who worked in the factories and pro football had no place and, and it really took a long time to hook hook up with the, with the public um, in the 1920s in the NFL alone there were uh, scores and scores of franchises that just came in the NFL and faded out especially in big cities some of the most successful franchises in the NFL back in the early days were those in smaller towns because they didn't have as much to offer a fan base as a city like New York what sort of teams and what sort of towns uh, uh, faded, came and went? In the earliest stages in the 20s, um, there were teams from small towns that you may not have heard of ever, like Pottsville, Pennsylvania, or Rock Island, Illinois, and some of them were quite successful. In fact, the 1925 Pottsville Maroons were the best football team in the, the league. The Pottsville Maroons? Pottsville Maroons, a small coal mining town in um, eastern, east, southeastern Pennsylvania. In Green Bay, Wisconsin, for example, and same with Pottsville, Pennsylvania, they didn't have any colleges in town back in those days. So there were no college football games. The Packers or the Pottsville Maroons might draw 3,000 paying customers who pay maybe a dollar per game. So, in, in fact, the revenue earned by a small-town team was as great as or better than some of, the, some of the big-town teams. What was another influence that made professional football so big? It wasn't until the 30s when uh, a new breed of NFL ownership took over some of these franchises. Their ownership said, we need to do something to differentiate ourselves from college football. And they created a championship game. They created uh, uh, an NFL draft. They made up rules that made the game more interesting, more passing was, was encouraged. So they, um, they had a smaller football, so that it would be um, more passing, more scoring, uh, they, they tried very hard to market themselves. In 1930, 1934, 35, 36, they had um, films that were created, and they put, sent them out to various uh, entities across the country trying to get people to watch the highlight reels. They were doing anything they could to sort of catch the public imagination. And eventually they got a national, nationwide radio. Um, uh, the NFL championship game was on a nationwide radio audience. Once the, the, the fans started catching on that this was a different game, an interesting game, and something that was worth their time and money. When did the stars start emerging? In 1925, Red Grange went to the NFL. 
Uh, Red Grange was a major college football name and, and became sort of uh, the Babe Ruth of pro football for a couple of years. When he came to the NFL, they had large uh, crowds for the Chicago Bears. He played for the first year. And then he, the next year in 26, he went to the New York Yankees, which was a, uh, a rival league franchise. Um, and, and they threw large crowds. There was a football team called the New York Yankees? There was a, a New York Yankees football team. There was a Brooklyn Dodgers football was team. Was this okay with the baseball team owners? <laughs> well, I'm sure if they did it today, there'd be lawsuits. But back in those days, the, the owners didn't care as much. Um, it, in fact, many of these teams played in the, the baseball stadiums and it would give the owner of the baseball team a little stadium revenue in the offseason. Fred Grange was a big star, but within a couple of years, his, his, his star burnt out. And, but what really keeps a fan base is, is allegiance to a team. And that didn't really happen until the late 1930s and early 40s when you start seeing strong fan bases who don't care, don't care if they have a star or not. They just want the teams to win. You know, there's less pressure on the Patriots because they've been there. You know, yeah. once you've won, once you've done it, and they've done it, once you've done it, there's a lot less pressure. So we'll see what happens. But, you know, you have to stick up for your friends, right? Let's give it up for the Super Bowl champion, Denver Broncos. This is really, this event, this Super Bowl is such an American sports spectacle, but don't you feel in many ways it's almost turned into a national holiday now? Well, it seems like it. The camera guy sitting right here said, hurry up and finish so I can get home and watch the game. <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, the, 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 the Super Bowl is pervasive. People, people kind of plan their day around, and I've got my brother Marvin coming over, who you know well, and uh, Secretary of Commerce Evans, with whom I've seen a lot of Super Bowls in the past are bringing their families over, and we're going to sit around and watch a good game. I want to say it is a great pleasure and honor for all of us to have the Dallas Cowboys in the East Room. Four years ago, they were about 1-15, and 15, and four years later, they won the Super Bowl. In the parlance of Washington, we call that deficit reduction. What happened after the Second World War, and then you had the advent of television? TV was an incredible impact, and, and pro football, like boxing and some of the other, you know, what they called junk sports, like wrestling and roller derby. Pro football was uh, really a, a sport that was well made for, uh, unknowingly and unwittingly made for, for, um, for television. Uh, the owner of the Chicago Bears, George Hallis, uh, in 1949, signed a contract to um, put, his, put his team on television for the first time. He actually had to beg and, beg and plead to put his team on TV. But he said, you know, more people saw the Bears play in 1949 than saw them play in the entire history of the Bears. Within a decade, revenue from television went from nothing to about $100,000 a, a team or $150,000 a team. By, 19, by 1970, every team was making over a million dollars. Right now, the contracts, I think, are it's like $70 billion, all the networks combined, they're paying into the NFL. So it's gone from nothing to $70 billion in the course of 70 years. TV helped make football what it is. It went from being a sleepy sport that had a small following to really becoming the national game. So let me ask you about that concept of the national game, because you know the phrase as American as baseball, apple pie, and mom. The fact that pro football is exciting, a lot more scoring in pro football. Every three or four plays in, in football is high drama. You know, whereas in baseball, you might get uh, a rally once or twice or three times in a game, our home run goes, you know, how many home runs the teams hit? One or two a game at the very most sometimes, and especially with the rule changes that have come around since the 1970s. 
to make football even more pass-oriented and more exciting and more scoring. Um, you know, it really has captured the national imagination of, 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 of American sports enthusiasts. And what has made football more generally, but the Super Bowl particularly, a cultural phenomenon? The United States relatively stops on Super Bowl Sunday. I coach basketball for my sons, and we had a game scheduled at 7 p.m. on Super Bowl Sunday. Now, and, and there was an uproar of my parents and uproar of the referees, and of course, that got rescheduled. I teach a sports history class at Lehigh University uh, every now and again. And I remember one time I, after the Super Bowl, I had a class Monday morning, and one student didn't watch the game out of a, stu- of a class of 100. And everybody looked at that person like something was seriously wrong with that person. And, and why does it happen? Well, it, it's the ultimate game. It's a lot of gambling. It's a social event. It's middle of winter time, looking for something to sort of come together and, and celebrate. So it seems like the perfect sort of contrived event to bring communities together. What the Super Bowl has become uh, was never envisioned. Back in the early 60s, some of the old owners of the NFL had their first million-dollar TV contract. And George Hallis said to Art Rooney, who was the owner of the, of the Pittsburgh Steelers, he said, such success is indecent. Imagine what they would say now when they see the hundreds of millions of dollars and billions of dollars that are, that are spent on and around the, the Super Bowl. Not to be sacrilegious, but there are people who will only go to church on Easter or on Christmas, and there are people who uh-huh. will only watch a football game when it's the Super Bowl. This is the, 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 the league or the network's dream, a large audience of men and women of all ages, of all backgrounds, watching a live event. Uh, this is why you can charge $5 million for that. Everybody watches not just the game, but they watch the commercials. It's, it's an incredible money-making venture. So the NFL continually finds ways to market this game as spectacle. It's, it's beyond just a sporting event. And really, in some respects, some people come and watch it just because they want to watch the com- commercials or gamble a little bit on it by getting a square, trying to get numbers and win some money. And this is a very meaningful experience that may have a little bit to do with football, but a lot to do with America and its values and its culture, which revolve around Well, I, I'm caught up in Super Bowl mania here, and I'm happy to be here. What I really am interested in, what other people from out of town think, but I can tell you, uh, this event has captured the imagination of all Houstonians, whether they play football or are interested in football or not. And uh, it's a great thing for our city. Joining us for the toss of the coin, the President of the United States, Mr. Ronald Reagan. Mr. McElhinney, it's a distinct pleasure and a privilege for me to be a participant although I wish I could be a participant closer at hand. Mr. President, will you please toss the coin? It is tails. I think it's pretty even. I think just between you and me that it's moment that I, that Miami have to be given an edge because they're younger and faster. On the other hand, the Redskins have something going for them that may that could be the uh, differential, and that is that they may be a little hungrier. How do you think this is going to fare in an age when people watch on their phones or pads and really aren't so invested in seeing something live? The live TV market is, is changing, obviously, and everything is down, and the NFL has to expect that. One of the areas we haven't talked about yet that really has seen a rise in interest is fantasy sport. 
you know, pro football is another one of those sports that mobile devices use that for highlights and for stats and for information. And a whole new generation of young people are getting interested in professional football, not so much through live television, but using mobile devices to follow their teams, whether live or uh, with highlights or, or fantasy apps, is rising incredibly. So that's the future. The NFL is there. The findings about brain damage and concussions. I think a lot of people are affected by that and may say to themselves, do I really want to watch guys doing this to each other? This is a serious problem for the NFL. Um, more and more uh, living players who uh, are older and who had concussions who are coming back and, and suing the NFL with lawsuits. And um, this is not going to go away anytime soon. I think long term, that's going to have a negative impact on the NFL, even more so than we've already seen. I've asked my students a number of times in classes 50 years from now, what will be the number one American sport? Very few of them will say professional football. They have an array of other sports they'll say, but for the reason that you mentioned before, because of head trauma, not so much today, but the effect that's going to have over the course of the next 50 years. Um, pro football, they all think, many scholars think, pro football, I think, will you know slowly erode that, that very loyal and very um, loving fan base. But the worst thing for football is to take the tackling and the, and the violence out of it, because that's an allure for many people. But that's going to be necessary if they want to really, really do something to prevent um, these injuries from you know, affecting the lives of the players and the next generations coming up. There are parents, as many as 50 percent, as I've seen in polls, who are reluctant to let their kids start to play football for those mm -hmm. very reasons. Yeah. I won't let my sons play tackle football. They want to play flag football. It's fine. They play baseball. They play soccer. They play basketball. Uh, they don't play football because I love them too much to have them go through what I've, what I've seen in number of football players, you know, late in their career, late in their life, um, struggling just to put a sentence together. Is there also a reluctance as people are watching millionaires playing for billionaires, as the phrase goes? Back in the early years of pro football, even in the early 19. 70s, the average football player didn't make a lot. The, the average NFL salary in 1970 was $20,000 a year. Two, by 2000, it was $1 million a year. And in 2011, the average salary was $2 million a year. It's doubled, by, I'm sure, by now. It's tough, especially when you have issues of labor. It, it would be tough to have the average American sympathize with the, the poor players who are only making millions. Well, one exception to that is a team that you love and I love, the Green Bay Packers, where these are, are publicly owned. The Green Bay Packers have thrived for decades with this model. The Packers uh, were one of those small-town teams that the only way they could survive um, was by enlisting the local community not just to go to games, but to bail them out financially. And um, back in the 20s, this was not exceptional. Uh, a number of other teams did it, uh, but the Packers and their fans were able to sustain it. In 1922, Curly Lambeau, the the first coach and founder of the Green Bay Packers, he owned the team for one season, but he was a 23-year-old man who had just gotten married, who didn't have any deep pockets at all, and, and the team hit, some, hit a rough stride in, in the season, and he went bankrupt. Um, in order to save the franchise, uh, local leaders said, we need to bail it out because we like the team so much. So what they did... They went around town and got people to pledge money to the team. In, in 1930s, they did that when they had a crisis. In 1949, they did that when they had another crisis. Um, they've had stock sales in the 1990s, and they had a stock sale in 2011. And my sons and I all purchased a, a share of stock in, 19, in 2011. You know, this is a great model. So it, you're it, an you know, NFL owner. 
I'm an NFL owner, yes. I own one share of, of a million in the Green Bay Packers. And the Packers stock, though, it's non-profit, it's non-dividend earning voting stocks. Uh, I don't get any tickets. I don't get any kickbacks. In effect, when I purchase the stock, it's, it's basically giving money to this organization that's worth billions of dollars. All the money that goes to the team will go back into the team, not to a yacht like Jerry Jones just purchased for himself. Any profit that the Packers earn um, will be put in the bank or put toward community projects in Green Bay or the state of Wisconsin. The NFL banned this type of ownership every place with the exception of Green Bay. So nobody can do this anyplace else except in Green Bay. The Packers are not in the Super Bowl this year, so who are you cheering for? <laughs> um, I, I, I'm going for the Rams. I, I think the Rams are a young, up-and-coming team. And that, finally, I hope the Rams can win by a large margin because I want to put the uh, Patriots and that whole franchise and their long and, and history to rest. I'm, I'm all in for the Rams. I hope they win 41-14 to 14 and, and really shut, quiet, quiet um, Bill Belichick and Tom Brady. You and me both. Craig Coonan, thank you so much. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered and edited by Mike Heflin, Joe Fish, and Dave Wine. The music is the NFL fanfare and the On Wisconsin fight song. The clips of presidential Super Bowl comments are from official government sources, from Fox Sports, and from the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast.